Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a uh, family. Number one, uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Allison Duvall. And I'm Kendall Martin. Welcome to Episode 9. Hometown is a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the Refugee Resettlement and Welcome Ministry of the Episcopal Church. Learn more about our work on our website, EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org, and Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together and read the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at goodbookclub.org, and you can find them on Facebook, The Good Book Club. The Good Book Club readings for this week are Acts 4.23 through Acts 6. We are honored to offer this week's reflection from the Reverend Canon Stephanie Spellers. Canon Spellers serves as the presiding bishop's canon for evangelism, reconciliation, and creation, helping Episcopalians to follow Jesus and foster loving, life-giving, and liberating relationships with God, each other, and the earth. We hope you enjoy this week's reflection. There are any number of provocative stories and images tucked into chapters 4 to 6 of the book of Acts. I'd like to dwell for a moment with Acts 4.32 to Acts 5.11, specifically with these lines. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. This vision of self-sacrifice and other-directed care runs throughout the book of Acts. It's clearly not an easy choice. Notice Ananias and Sapphira, who lied and kept some of the proceeds from selling their property. But this radical generosity is clearly the choice God wants God's people to make. Notice how quickly the selfish couple gets struck down, apparently by none other than the Holy Spirit. I don't suppose the choices are any easier for us today. The spirit of generosity, love of neighbor, and communal concern grounds all of Christian life. But let's face it, we make exception after exception in practice because it's so countercultural and just plain hard. Have you been in the room when someone brings up socialism or commonly held property? Most Americans push the very idea aside as anathema, as if there's no way we could take such extremes seriously. But what if we did? What if we took God at God's word, saw the Acts community not as naive or a misguided experiment, but as a vision of selflessness and faithfulness that inspires every Christian? No, I'm not saying I know how to do this, but some Christians have, you know. They didn't live in less complex times. They simply took God seriously, and it changed everything. Archbishop William Temple stands out for me as one of these figures. He served as Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Anglican Communion during World War II. Throughout his ministry, 
temple carried the Church of the Empire over to the side of the most poor, most oppressed, most reviled. He saw the desperate condition of workers and he used his post as Bishop of Manchester to mediate a coal strike. He wore the badge of Christian socialism with pride and urged any Christian to do the same. Temple saw the virulent, easy anti-Semitism of the British people, and he ended up co-founding the National Council of Christians and Jews. And when his nation hesitated to receive Jews and other refugees fleeing extermination across Europe, he made this statement to Parliament. My chief protest is against procrastination of any kind. The Jews are being slaughtered at the rate of tens of thousands a day on many days. We at this moment have upon us a tremendous responsibility. We stand at the bar of history, of humanity, and of God. Temple was clear. No nation with a heart, no people who call themselves Christian, no one who worships the God of mercy could say no to refugees fleeing the Nazi scourge. Oh, and I'm sure he heard the complaints. Well, this isn't reasonable. Shouldn't we care for our own first? Did we cause their suffering? Then why risk our prosperity to take care of them? But Temple kept returning to the only question that matters. What does the love of Jesus bid us to do now? And even when good Christian folk still held back and asked, what does all of this have to do with the church anyway? Well, Temple shot back with an answer that rings through the ages. He said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. In other words, Jesus gave his life for love of the world. How can those who call themselves by his name cling to our money, homes, or national boundaries when vulnerable ones are knocking at the door? If we're not giving our lives away, are we truly following Jesus? I don't pose these questions as if the answers are simple. They are not. All I know is once upon a time, the followers of Jesus believed no one in or near their diverse circle should be needy, hungry, or homeless. Christians built our lives around the conviction that no stranger should stand unwelcome at the door. And every now and then, we've recommitted to that way of life. Yeah, well, today we stand at a moment, as Temple said, at the bar of history of humanity and of God. What does the love of Jesus bid us to do now? Amen. Wow. I first have to say, you know, I'm always really moved by Canon Speller's, just her energy and her enthusiasm around God's love and what it calls mm -hmm. us to do in this world. And me there too. were, right? So mm -hmm. there were a few lines from her reflection that really stuck with me. And I want to repeat them here because they so perfectly summed up the readings for me in a way that I think a lot of us can relate to. Mm -hmm. And the first is. What does the love of Jesus bid us to do now? And of course, the real hard-hitting part of that question is now. 
And I think about this whenever um, this work feels too hard or too daunting. And, you know, like, what are we called to do right now? And the other question that really hit me was, if we're not giving our lives away, are we really following Jesus? And I think that's a really important one to reflect on and consider. Like, who are we living our lives for? And what are we doing in this moment right now for others? Um, what was your takeaway, Allison? Oh, goodness. Well, I, I'm always really not taken aback, I don't think is the right word, but overwhelmed and just filled with this sense of the gravity of what it means to be a Christian when I hear stories of what what Christians were doing when they were speaking out during World War II against what was happening in Nazi Europe. I, I'm always, I, I feel like almost bowled over by a wind, honestly. And I think it just, it makes being a Christian seem like an immense responsibility. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking this is really hard. Like deciding to be a Christian and to follow Jesus is not easy. And it's not something we can take lightly because it really requires that we ask really hard hitting questions about what's going on in the world around us and what we're supposed to do in response to it. You know, just like you said, her question of what does the love of Jesus bid us to do now? So I kind of find myself struggling with that tension of like, I can't live in that chronic sense of, of urgency, but I think I'm called to. I think that God is calling us to live in this sense of holy urgency, that as followers of Jesus, we are called to respond with God's love in some of the most desperate of situations. But it's hard. I think, honestly, Kendall, I think that's what I'm I'm thinking about listening to Canon Stephanie's. I believe I believe everything that she says. But being a Christian's hard. Yeah, Allison, I mean, I think it is really hard and I think that's part of why we have to continually ask ourselves these questions. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that is why it's so important to continually ask what we should be doing now and how we should be giving our lives away. Mm-hmm. And what does it really mean to follow Jesus? And I think it's important that we're continually asking those questions of ourselves. And I don't think it's meant to be easy. I think it is hard work. I think it's yeah. also really rewarding and really beautiful. Mm. It is It is beautiful and it's rewarding. And I think this reflection reminds us, as we are reminded every year of Holy Week, and of the suffering that Jesus underwent and that we are called as the church every year to to go deep into that experience. But we are also to work toward and have faith in the hope of Easter and the hope of the resurrection. And so the Christian walk, while so difficult, is, as you say, it's it's rewarding because we know we are people of hope. We are people of faith in the resurrection, and we are working to ensure that others can experience God's love as we have. This week, we're going to discuss the disputed territory and partially recognized state of Kosovo in connection to refugees in advance of next week's episode when we interview Antigona Mahani, the former director for St. Francis Community Services in Wichita, Kansas, an affiliate of Episcopal Migration Ministries. 
And as always, listeners, we want to remind you that neither of us is a historian nor an expert in any particular situation. And I will I will raise my hand and admit that this is an area of the world and a, a large-scale conflict about which I knew very little. So I've learned so much, as Kendall did the amazing research for this episode, and we would really encourage all of you to read the podcast notes we put out there review our website and and begin to understand what happened in the region of the world where the former Yugoslavia was in the breakup of the Yugoslav Republic of which Kosovo was a part. All right, well, let's get started. So Kosovo is landlocked. It's bordered by Serbia to the north and east, Macedonia to the south, Albania to the west, and Montenegro to the northwest. Kosovo, about the same size as Jamaica or Lebanon, is the smallest country in the Balkans. In order to cover the events of the late 80s, early 90s that led to the refugee crisis we know, it's important to distill the history of Kosovo. At the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, an army of the Turkish Ottoman Empire defeated a force of Serbs and their allies. The Turks established direct rule over all of Serbia, including Kosovo, by the mid-15th century. A significant amount of Kosovo's Orthodox Serb population immigrated north and west to other territories, while others converted to Islam. After holding off an invasion from Austria in 1690, during which many Serbs sided with the invaders, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 Serbs joined in retreating with the Austrian army. By the 18th century, Albanian speakers constituted a majority. It was the abolition in 1766 of the Serbian Orthodox Patriarchate at Peck that diminished the importance of Kosovo as a Serbian cultural center. Following the Balkan War in 1912, Serbia regained control of Kosovo, but it lost it again in World War I. Kosovo was incorporated into the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, later renamed Yugoslavia, as a part of Serbia after an occupation divided between Austria-Hungary and Bulgaria ended in 1918. After being forced to flee from the Serbian army, thousands of Kosovar Albanians emigrated to what became Turkey between the years of 1918 and 1920. And while the Serbs' numbers did increase in Kosovo, they still remained a minority. And kind of understanding the the groups that live in Kosovo is important to the history we'll continue to tell. Kosovo was united with Albania under Italian control during World War II after the Axis powers occupied Yugoslavia in 1941. Kosovar Albanians then drove out or killed thousands of interwar Serb colonists. After Axis forces retreated in 1944, Ethnic Albanians who wanted Kosovo to remain united with Albania staged a revolt, which was crushed by Yugoslavia's new communist government. Yugoslavia granted Kosovo the status of an autonomous region, later autonomous province, within Serbia. However, it continued to suppress national sentiments among Kosovar Albanians. Starting in the mid-1960s, the Yugoslavian government followed policies that acknowledged Albanian ethnic identity and enabled Albanians to advance in provincial and federal administrations. This albanization of the province was also stimulated by an increasing departure of Serbs for Serbia. Kosovo's status as an autonomous province was that of a republic in all but name. 
Sharp rises in energy prices placed growing strain on the Yugoslav economy, and conflict deepened amongst its republics over the issue of aid to underdeveloped regions like Kosovo. Politicians in Serbia began to resent the ability of Kosovars to act with representatives of other Yugoslav republics, even against Serbian interests. This indignation felt by Serbs was capitalized upon by Slobodan Milosevic, a politician who became leader of Serbia's Communist Party in 1987 and president of the Serbian Republic in 1989. Milosevic gained control over the communist leadership in four of the eight constituent communist parties, and he threatened to control and later did control the government of Yugoslavia. It wasn't long after becoming president that Milosevic stripped Kosovo of its autonomy and Serbia took direct control. The ethnic Albanians staged violent protest over the measures. Milosevic sent military units to Kosovo in 1990, dissolved the province's assembly, and closed all schools teaching in the Albanian language. In an unrecognized referendum held in September that year, the Kosovars voted to succeed from Serbia and Yugoslavia. Ultimately, the contributing causes of the breakup of the federal Yugoslav state in 1991 were the cost to the Yugoslav government and economic aid to the province, and the toughness of Serbia's response to Kosovar Albanian nationalism. A new Yugoslav state was created in 1992, consisting of only Serbia and Montenegro, dominated by the Milosevic regime. Faced with the threat of Belgrade government's willingness to use military force, Kosovo's Albanians adopted passive, non-violent resistance to Serbian control. They developed their own network of Albanian language school and civil institutions under the leadership of pacifist Abraham Rogova. Many Kosovar Albanians became frustrated by their lack of independence from the Serb-dominated Yugoslav government. While most Albanians remained committed to non-violence, a small ethnic Albanian organization founded the Kosovo Liberation Army, the KLA, in 1996. The KLA began attacking Serbian police and officials in Kosovo. In 1997, the KLA obtained arms in Albania, prompting the Yugoslav army to stage a major crackdown in the rebel-held Drenica region in early 1998. The brutality of the campaign drove new recruits into the KLA, and by summer, fighting had broken out between the KLA and the heavily armed Yugoslav forces, Serbian police, and Serbian paramilitary groups. The Yugoslav military tactics drove thousands of ethnic Albanian villagers from their homes, and by late summer, the plight of these refugees had started to cause serious international concern. International negotiators met repeatedly with Kosovar Albanian and Yugoslav representatives in an attempt to end the Kosovo conflict. A ceasefire agreement negotiated in November 1998 ended by December when the Yugoslav army launched a major offensive against the KLA. After talks in February 1999 bore no result by mid-March, NATO began an aerial bombardment of selected Serb targets in Serbia and Kosovo. By the end of April 1999, about 600,000 residents of Kosovo had become refugees. Another 400,000 were displaced inside Kosovo, meaning that half of the 2 million residents of Kosovo were refugees or internally displaced people. Yugoslav and Serbian forces initiated a campaign of ethnic cleansing against Kosovar Albanians, 
that by June of 1999 had driven hundreds of thousands of refugees into Albania, Macedonia, and Montenegro. The NATO bombardment continued until June, when a peace agreement called for the withdrawal of Yugoslav and Serbian forces from Kosovo and their replacement by NATO peacekeeping troops. In the midst of the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999, Milosevic was charged by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia with war crimes in connection to the wars in Bosnia, Croatia, and Kosovo. The UN court ruled that Serbian troops did not carry out genocide against ethnic Albanians during Slobodan Milosevic's campaign of aggression in Kosovo from 1998 to 1999. The court said there had been a systematic campaign of terror, including murders, rapes, arsons, and severe maltreatments. Crimes against humanity and war crimes did take place, it said, but the exhaustions committed by Milosevic's regime cannot be qualified as criminal acts of genocide, since their purpose was not the destruction of the Albanian ethnic group, but its forceful departure from Kosovo. The controversial ruling angered some Albanians, and some UN officials challenged the decision. Milosevic resigned from the Yugoslav presidency amid demonstrations. In 2001, Milosevic was extradited to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia to stand trial for charges of war crimes. Milosevic conducted his own defense in the five-year-long trial, which ended without a verdict when he died in his prison cell in The Hague in 2006. In mid-1999, the UN sponsored an interim administration in Kosovo. As they started to carry out the peace agreement, Kosovar refugees began returning to the province, and the remaining Serbs began to flee the region. The Serb population fell below 10%. UN talks in 2005 led to the 2007 plan that laid the groundwork for self-rule, but stopped short of full independence. While Kosovar Albanians fully endorsed the plan, there was intransigent opposition from the Serbian government. On February 17, 2008, Kosovo formally declared independence. Serbia, backed by Russia, called the declaration illegal. The Serbs living in Kosovo also largely opposed Kosovar independence. They elected their own assembly as a challenge to Kosovo's new constitution, which took effect in June. The question of the legality of Kosovo's independence was submitted by the UN General Assembly to the International Court of Justice. At the same time, Russian objections postponed the withdrawal of the UN mission, which was expected to transfer its powers of oversight to the EU. The EU finally deployed its mission in December. The mission, known as ULUX, made up of 2,000 officials from a number of European countries, would oversee police, judicial, and customs activities in Kosovo. In 2009, Kosovo held its first election since independence. The EU extended the ULEX mission for two years through mid-2012. The decision by the International Court of Justice to recognize Kosovo's declaration of independence was expected to strengthen the determination of the Kosovar Albanian government and the ULEX authorities as well as to consolidate Kosovo's sovereignty within its declared borders, largely if not unanimously recognized by the international community. While relations with Serbia remain unsettled, there was some hope for resolved relations through EU-mediated talks called for in a UN resolution supported by Serbia and passed in September 2010. 
Unrest continued in northern Kosovo through 2011, as Serbs with continued support of Serbia created parallel institutions in defiance of the Kosovar government in Pristina. EU police and NATO troops maintained uneasy peace in the region as Kosovo and Serbia continued negotiations. In 2012, the European Commission determined that Kosovo had made enough progress to begin negotiations for a stabilization and association agreement, an important step toward accession to the EU. And in April 2013, Kosovo and Serbia reached an agreement that granted autonomy to ethnic Serbs in northern Kosovo in exchange for de facto recognition of Kosovo's authority in the region. Serbian negotiators stopped short of recognizing Kosovo's independence, however. In 2014, a compromise was made between the Democratic League of Kosovo and the Democratic Party of Kosovo, as they installed the Democratic League of Kosovo's leader, Issa Mustafa, as prime minister. In 2015, Kosovo and Serbia made great progress in normalizing their relations. They concluded negotiations that addressed energy and telecommunications issues. Although EU officials have said additional political and economic reforms will be necessary before they will consider full accession, over $700 million in developmental aid has been made available to Kosovo to achieve these goals. We've covered a lot of ground today with the history of Kosovo and what caused the refugee crisis of 1998-1999. And this backgrounder is meant to be a precursor to next week's episode when we interview Antigona Mahani, who came to this country as a refugee when she was just a child from Kosovo. We hope you will join us and learn about this inspiring and successful woman who is a champion for refugee rights. Listeners, thank you for joining us this week. We're so grateful for each and every one of you. We invite you to prayerfully support Episcopal Migration Ministries with a donation. No gift is too small, and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. You can visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 51555. Our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Mawinda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammawindamusic.com. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. And don't forget to rate and review us. <laughs> Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home.